The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Hey everybody, happy Tuesday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. So glad to have you with me on this another balmy day here in Detroit. Maybe, maybe we've turned the corner. I'm hoping so. It certainly feels like it the last couple of days. And I'll tell you what, the crowds downtown are growing as the weather has improved. It's quite nice to see uh, lots of people out and about and um, chipper moods abound. All right, hey, we're going to get into something today that I think is really, really interesting. We have a number of discussions about the issue of gentrification and whether or not this is something that is occurring in the city of Detroit. There are a number of people that are feeling potentially squeezed out, maybe left out of any potential rebirth of this community and rebirth of several of the neighborhoods, especially those that are close in proximity to downtown Detroit. We are starting to see development move out into outer neighborhoods. A big announcement that came the other day about some philanthropic and corporate support uh, for the old Redford neighborhood on the west side, which we'll dig into sometime in the next few days. I think it's a great project, and there's some really, really worthwhile people out there in that neighborhood that have been working hard uh, to make that neighborhood ready for this type of investment. So lots of things that are going on. But there is still a perception that somehow this is an uneven uh, growth here in the in the community. But one of the problems that we face is if we just you know chalk it all up to gentrification and suggest that everybody's being displaced, is it really looking at what is happening when it comes to neighborhood change, not just in the city of Detroit, but in the entire metro region? And there are some surprising findings from a new study at the University of Minnesota that is taking a look at this and what is really going on. In fact, it finds that gentrification is only taking place in a few communities around the country, places like New York and Washington, D.C. come to mind. But in cities like Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, something different has happened, and it's it's more of a concentration of poverty that is taking place. I, I don't have all the answers to this. That's why I've invited a guest to talk about it. His name is William Stansel. Of course, he is a research fellow at the Institute on Metropolitan Opportunity at the University of Minnesota. His new study called American Neighborhood Change in the 21st Century, has just been released. I found a really, really good write-up about it on City Lab magazine. And uh, I think if it's one of those things that you find online and you can take a look through it, uh, you'll get a better understanding of what this portrait is here. But William Stansel joins me right now to talk about it. William, welcome to the Craig Folly Show. It's a pleasure to have you with me today. Absolutely. Well, you know, this is a subject that has been uh, high on the minds of people around here for for quite a while. Uh, There's a lot of you know, renovation that's happening in downtown Detroit, a lot of discussion about what is going on in terms of, of displacement, gentrification. Is it really happening here? Uh, this study seems to take sort of a definitive look at the question, uh, not just in, in Metro Detroit, but obviously on a national level, the largest metropolitan areas. I was really intrigued by your finding that this notion of gentrification, despite being top of mind for so many people, is really only occurring in a few select metro regions. Um why do you think, and, and we'll start with this broad question here, why do you think so many people are concerned about something that isn't necessarily happening in their neighborhood? I think gentrification is a, it, it's a easy to worry about in a lot of ways because of, um, it, it suggests that there's a, there's a sort of a limited selection of people to blame for na- changes in the neighborhood um, that are, you know, people arriving in the neighborhood, newcomers, you know, unfamiliar people. Um, 
And it's and it suggests in some ways a easier solution that you know you just have to keep out that investment or those new people, and the neighborhood will stay exactly the same forever. Um, and so, and and I also think that there's a there's a tendency to uh, look at changes in the neighborhood, lots of which are going to be many different kinds, and just and just sort of chalk them all up to gentrification because it's sort of a buzzword. Um, but but I think I think the reality is a lot more complicated than that. Well, you know, obviously, this is a like I said, very comprehensive study. You've been looking at a lot of data from a lot of different areas. Um, I, I thought the thing that was most surprising is is that gentrification doesn't seem to be the issue as much as a concentration of poverty that we're seeing around the country. This is something we've been very familiar with in Detroit for a long time. But what we do see, especially when it comes to Detroit, is how that concentration of poverty is moving to areas in which we used to think were somewhat isolated from that, namely the suburbs. And how common is that across the country? That's incredibly common. That's been going on. That's been going on for about uh, probably about thirty years now, at least. Um, you know, this is this is this is. There are a few trends that are just that are just universal almost across the country in terms of how ch- cities are changing and growing. And, and this is probably the most universal trend that you have uh, growing poverty out from the city, out from these city neighborhoods that were used to be you know, highly segregated, very poor um, and, and reaching out into the first ring suburbs, um, sometimes into the second ring suburbs. Um, and, you know, those suburbs becoming poor and becoming sometimes racially segregated themselves. And then the process just sort of repeating itself. So when you look at that, though, I mean, do, do people confuse the two? I mean, do, do they sit there and, and look at this and, and assume that this is just a byproduct of, of gentrification? Uh, because, you know, again, in Detroit, I, I've been arguing this for years. It, it's mm-hmm. tough to gentrify something that didn't have people in it before, uh, namely downtown Detroit, where a lot of the investment is taking place. Yeah. So I think that I think that there is um, I think there's a tendency in some states to look at the gentrifying neighborhoods where you have people that are being displaced. You know, then some cities have neighborhoods that are clearly gentrifying, like New York or even Chicago has got a few. And people say, well, what's happening here is that people are leaving these neighborhoods, they're displaced, and then they're going out to the suburbs, and, you know, these are lower-income people, and then that's causing poverty in the suburbs. But I think what you see is that the poverty concentration is actually happening everywhere, regardless of whether it's gentrification or not. So I don't think that's a very good explanation, to be honest. So when when you get to approach a topic like this, and, and again, you know, people have said in their minds that this is indeed what is going on, that they are somehow being di- displaced. Um, what do you think is, is really sort of at the root of, of a lot of the changes that people are seeing? Because, you know, as you point out in this study, you know, those who are renting, those who are at the low end of the income uh, spectrum typically are those that are most likely to move in the first place. It, it may not have anything to do with the economic pressures of the neighborhood. What is going on there? So I think I think that one of the things one of the main things that gets attributed to uh, being gentrification is, is just increasing housing costs. I mean, I, that's what you hear everywhere that, you know, my, my rent went up, the housing prices are going up. I can't afford housing. And people say it's that must be gentrification. But the reality is that there's lots of different things that can cause housing costs to increase. And one of those things is poverty, it, 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 whether or not a neighborhood is economically improving or economically declining. In both instances, you tend to see housing costs increasing. And, you know, a lot, sometimes it's just because the, the average incomes in the neighborhood are either declining or stagnant while, you know, or not keeping up with inflation. And so it seems to people like their housing costs are going up. But in reality, what's happening is that, that the residents are sort of falling behind economically. Um, and then yeah, you read that as gentrification. Uh, understood. Understood. And, you know, you look at Detroit and, and uh, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as sort of the canary in the coal mine when it comes to these sorts of things. It's just in terms of especially that concentration of poverty that we're seeing uh, and and, uh, and and racial isolation that comes along with it in many instances. This is not unique to Detroit, though, apparently. 
No. So so <clears throat> there's sort of a spectrum of change. What tends to happen is that neighborhoods will become segregated. They'll come poorer. And then anyone who did as a neighborhood, when that happens, there's lots of problems that arise in neighborhoods. If you're over-policing, under-policing, you tend to get sort of extractive economic practices, slumlord, stuff like that. And so what happens is that people services decline. And so people who are middle income, when living in a neighborhood like that, will often leave as soon as they can. And that just makes a neighborhood even poorer because all the middle incomes are leaving. And then, you know, it, then it just repeats. And so this is there's sort of this downward slope, this downward spiral that, that neighborhoods can take. Um, it's happening all over the country and in, in suburban neighborhoods, particularly right now. But it's, it happened, it's happened in many central cities, many inner cities. Um, Detroit is probably, well, not really probably, Detroit is almost certainly the furthest along in this process anywhere in the country. Um, and a lot of people look at Detroit, and I've talked to other people in the wake of this report, and they've said essentially, are we going to become like Detroit? Is that where this is headed? And sometimes you think, look, you know, look at Akron or Cleveland, and you think, yes, maybe that might be the trajectory you're on. You look at it, I mean, I, just for a little background, I mean, before I, I got back into broadcasting, I spent uh, four years as the public affairs director for something called the Detroit Land Bank Authority. Our job was to somehow trying to find a way to bring back these neighborhoods, increase the property values, uh, rehab housing, eliminate blight that's taking place. This is what we were responding to. Is there any indication um, that we are seeing more innovative approaches to dealing with this? Or are cities just sort of, um, I guess, oblivious to the fact that this is actually slowly happening under their noses? Uh, it depends where you're looking. I think some places are doing better than others. Um, I, 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 the biggest, one of the biggest obstacles, and I'm sure you encounter this in, in your capacity at the land bank, is that for the most part, these problems can't be solved by the city itself, especially when it's a decline to pass a certain extent. I mean, Detroit, the problem with Detroit is that it doesn't have the tax base to do a lot of the things that we need to revitalize the neighborhoods. Um, and so you really have to act and act in a regional regional capacity to solve a lot of these problems. Um, some regions, like I'm, I'm in the Minneapolis region, and we have a regional government. Um, we have a lot of issues with how they are doing their housing policy, but but by and large, a regional government is is a, is a good approach for addressing some of these issues. Uh, Portland's got a regional approach, um, but then some cities, some regions are very fragmented politically, and you and you can't get the suburbs to work with the city in any way. I know the choice had issues with this in the past too. And um, once that happens, it, it's you know very difficult for a city to solve it on its own. I should remind folks, uh, my guest right now is William Stansel from the University of Minnesota. We're talking about a study uh, that he authored, taking a look at gentrification, the notion of gentrification, and what's actually happening uh, in census tracts across the country. And again, William, I want to talk about the scope of this for just a second, because sure. you didn't just focus on, on a few metro areas, some case studies, and not just those neighborhoods that technically would be considered eligible for gentrification. Uh, you looked at all of the census tracts within um, you know, these metro regions. Why was it important to make sure that you're getting that large of a scope of data? Uh, one of the problems with a lot of previous studies of gentrification is they, they will say, which areas are eligible for gentrification? You know, be the places with the housing prices that are 40% of the median or less, for instance. Um, and then they'll only look at those areas. And when you do that, you're really just cutting out you know, 50, 60, 70% of the data, 50, 60, 70% of the neighborhoods. And what, in reality, uh, there are no hard lines between, you know, city borders or neighborhood borders. Um, every neighborhood in a, in a region is part of a single housing market. They're all part of a single uh, uh, sort of, you know, social environment. And, and so they, when, you, when you artificially restrict an analysis to just one section of that, you're really it's – like, it's, it's like the example I've used in the past is it's like saying – you ask someone with a score of a basketball game, and they only say, say, well, the Lakers scored 90. 
And it's like, you need to know more than that to really know what's happening. <laughs> sure. You know, but you know, there are some people that are being displaced. What do you say to somebody who is being displaced as a result of this? So I would say a few things. I would say that, that but I would never say that there's no displacement. And, and you sometimes you hear what I would describe as sort of gentrification absolutists who just don't believe any exist, exists at all. And, I, and one thing that our report shows is that's not true, that, that most cities, Detroit really has less than anywhere, but most cities have a little bit. Um, even Detroit has a little pocket. It's, it's very, very small. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I don't want I don't want to downplay anyone's concerns about being displaced. The other thing I'd say is that being displaced and being displaced because of gentrification are two different things that that there are lots of reasons, lots of changes in a neighborhood that can cause housing to be come unaffordable, even if the neighborhood is not gentrifying in a way. And one of the things you see, one of the things that I have found in other research is not so much in this report, is that uh, low income neighborhoods, especially segregated low income neighborhoods, especially African-American segregated low income neighborhoods, actually tend to have disproportionately high rents compared to neighboring areas. And as far as we can tell, the best reason for that is that they are being discriminated against. So you have landlords who understand that people in these neighborhoods often have uh, evictions on their their record. They have other reasons they can't find housing that, you know, they would be difficult for them to get housing in and in a, go, go to the neighborhood next door and get housing. And so landlords take advantage of that by jacking up the rents on them and they get this place, even though they're already living in a poor neighborhood. So some in some way subsidizing uh, the risk that they might be taking on by taking on these uh, these t- renters. Uh, well, I would say I would say that it goes beyond that. I mean, I think that that what happens is is that simply they know that people who are who are in a segregated neighborhood who have who have you know major limitations in terms of housing they can get simply don't have better options, and they're a captive market. And when you have a captive market, you can raise prices on them. Well, William, you know, one of the things that I, I think one of the takeaways from this article, and, and I, I should let folks know, if you want to get a, a really good sort of primer on this, go to City Lab. Uh, they covered this pretty extensively about a week ago, and that's where I found it. And I, I just I brought it to my attention. Um, as of 2016, according to your research, there is no metropolitan region in the nation where a low income person was more likely to live in an economically expanding neighborhood than an economically declining neighborhood. That is a remarkable statistic to me, um, and and I think a, a warning shot for for the nation as a whole. What do you take away from that? I, I think that one of the most powerful forces in our in our, if not the most powerful force, um, determining how our metropolitan regions grow and evolve and how they're shaped is economic and racial segregation. And and to me, what that says is that segregation is still underway. That 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 there are lots of pressures pushing low-income people towards areas where lots of other low-income people live. And there's lots of pressures, you know, there's lots of pressures pushing middle-income people towards middle-income neighborhoods. Um, and, and so in a lot of ways, I think it just reflects the, the system of segregation that has been, you know, in place in our cities for, um, you know, a hundred years or more. Well, you know, I, I think one of the problems that we that we deal with then, if we're not necessarily looking at a, at a great set of data before this, we're asking the wrong questions about, you know, whether gentrification is occurring or is it not occurring, is that maybe policy decisions aren't matching up what is needed uh, for a remedy uh, for this situation. Do you get a sense that that uh, people in government uh, and those who think about these things are asking the right questions right now? I think uh, and again, this this varies from place to place. Um, I would say, by and large, there is probably too much emphasis on gentrification as a problem, and and much too little emphasis on co- poverty concentration. And and the reason I would say that, I think, I think, or the reason I think that is, is because, in a lot of ways, if you ha- 
when you address gentrification, what you're really doing in some ways is, is you're kind of asking, you're kind of maintaining the status quo. If you have, you have a low-income neighborhood and, and you say, well, this is gentrifying, let's build lots of affordable housing in that neighborhood. Let's build lots of subsidized units, you know, make sure none of the residents, you know, leave. People who live in affluent areas are fine with that because it leaves them, doesn't interfere with their neighborhood at all. And the same thing with, um, but when you, when you deal with poverty concentration, you know, a lot of times the solution to that is to build affordable housing in higher, more affluent areas to uh, put really massive resources into disinvested areas. And that's expensive. And it also uh, results in a, you know, lessening of segregation and increased racial and economic integration. And people come out and protest that, you know, if you, if you start building low income housing in a, in a middle income neighborhood, people, people will mob your city council meeting and say, you know, don't do this. And so I think it, I think that there's a, there's a lot of a uh, uh, status quo pressure that goes behind this. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, but you know, I, I guess the the question is, I mean, were you surprised by what you found uh, in this in this study? I mean, did you have an idea that this was what was going to be there when you when you dug through it, or was this a surprise? Um, well, so I do a lot. We do a lot of work on poverty concentration on segregation. So I wasn't that surprised, to be honest. I, I, I look. Part of the reason we did this is because we've had similar fights as you've had in Detroit here in Minneapolis with, uh, you know, some studies saying that this is the most gentrifying city in the country, that it's a huge problem. And we'd looked and we looked and we looked and we just couldn't find any real evidence for it. Um, and so, you know, it, and so I'd suspected that a lot of the gentrification concerns around the country were, were if not inflated, were, were, you know, lacking that perspective about the poverty concentration. Um, what, what did surprise me a little bit, I think, was really just the universal scale of the suburban poverty. I think, I think that, that, you know, we knew this was happening in a lot of places. I don't think I was quite as aware that it was happening you know, everywhere without exception. Yeah, without exception. Uh, whereas gentrification, as you point out, is happening only in the select areas. I mean, when you look at the cities where it is happening, obviously, uh, New York, um, you've got some markets in California uh, and, and Washington, D.C. I was really shocked that 40 percent of Washington, D.C. neighborhoods were in danger of gentrifying. Well, in, in danger, I don't know if that's the right word, but, uh, you know, we're potentially uh, going to be gentrified. Uh, why D.C. and what's happening there in terms of pressure that's making that the norm, not the not the exception? Yeah. So so the I, I think the, the, the narrow way of putting it, at least in our report, is that is that I think I can't I think it's about 40 percent. Uh, underwent or displacement in the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. So, so they the basically are gentrifying. And um, I think I think the thing with DC is that, it, first of all, that it is, you know, because of um, uh, just as the seat of government, um, there's, there, you know, it's economically a little robust, even in a time when there's uh, the private sorry, sector is struggling. And uh, there's not a lot of housing growth. <clears throat> you just don't, and, and, and in some ways, the places with the high, most displacement in places with strong economic pressures, but where there's just no capacity to add additional housing, um, and and I think you know DC DC has you know huge issues building new housing. Um, they don't they're very resistant to it. Um, you see the same thing in Brooklyn. You see the same thing in, um, like you said, most of California. You know, and, and again, this is. We hear a lot of talk about it. Is there an idea that you have heard that somebody put forward that you said, you know what, this is something that is going to address both of these issues. One, the concentration of poverty Two, uh, displacement. Is anybody doing something that you're looking at right now saying, wow, OK, there's an effective look at this or or at least they're thinking about it the right way? So there's <clears throat> there, there's no silver bullet here, it's particularly for concentration of poverty. This is this is the sort of the, the 
bad news in a lot of ways is that is that this is a problem that is is some in some ways the hardest problem of, of urban planning um is how to address concentration of poverty especially in a short time frame but the things that the things that we know have worked in other places um are regional planning sort of regional region-wide housing um transportation planning uh we, here in minneapolis we have tax-based sharing so that's Cities, so cities and suburbs all share some portion of their tax base, which tends to reduce the incentive to compete for housing and for you know rich residents. Um, and then one thing that helps a lot is is addressing directly addressing racial segregation, economic segregation directly. And you can do that through uh, fair share housing programs that is, that that uh, you know encourage or require each community to build some fair share of housing. You can do it through uh, school integration. Schools actually have a huge effect on on these uh, neighborhood changes. A lot of neighborhood changes are driven by a sense that schools are better and worse than a particular neighborhood. And so, if, you know, if you're strongly investing in schools in poor neighborhoods, you are actually adding a degree of resilience to those neighborhoods. And maybe if you do it enough, creating an incentive for people to move back into those neighborhoods. Well, well, William, I, I want to wrap up with this concept, and and this is something that I've noticed in the conversations that I've been having with with people in the neighborhoods for the last several years and, and interviews I've been doing. Um, but there really seems to be sort of... Um, People are reluctant to sort of detach the two terms, gentrification and opportunity, uh, mm -hmm. that they sort of go hand in hand in a way that the lack of opportunity is due to gentrification. Um, and, and I'm wondering how important it is that we sort of decouple those terms when we're going to have a rational discussion about it. Well, I, th I think what I'd say is, is that the term gentrification, you know, I, I just wrote a national report on gentrification. And if you ask me to provide the hard and fast definition of gentrification, I'd still say I'm not sure because no one really knows what gentrification means. It's, it's, it's a very blurry concept. So I think it's really important to be very, very specific about what, about the, the ex exact causes and effects that you're talking about. And so for instance, we're, when we in the, in the report, we mostly talk about displacement because displacement is the real harm that comes out of gentrification. And so I think that it's fair to say you know, if there's concerns about displacement, we should take measures to reduce displacement and we should be sure that displacement is actually happening. But I think that, that, that people shouldn't be afraid of just general economic development in a city that is really sorely lacking in it. There's just no way to turn around uh, a city that has had, you know, incredibly large issues of poverty for decades and decades without some kind of economic investment in the city. There's just there's just not enough money to go around you can't maintain businesses then people can't have jobs um you can't have tax base and so i i really think that, that that's that's the key is just be specific about the concerns you're worried about and and you know don't fear economic investment if you're the you know specific narrow problems that it can cause and address them narrowly uh, you know, I I had a conversation with a developer here just not too long ago who suggested that, you know, neighborhood concerns about uh, rising property values um, has led to a lot of uh, investors shying away from the city in numerous occasions. Uh, they're worried about the backlash for their projects in the neighborhood if they can't meet certain certain goals or, or wants from the community. Is there any indication that this is a nationwide trend that uh, developers are leery of this gentrification uh, conversation? Well, I would I would say this. I would say that if, when you look when you look at a neighborhood this historic concentration of poverty, or even a neighborhood that has experienced abandonment, as much of Detroit has, these are neighborhoods that developers are very cautious about invest, investing in or building in to begin with, because they are they're high risk neighborhoods. I mean, you know, you you're if you're building there, you're kind of assuming that the neighborhood will turn around, but you don't have a lot of historic evidence that that's the case. So they're kind of taking a gamble in the neighborhood in some ways, and so you know, developers are looking for an excuse not to build here. Um, 
I would be wary of giving them one. <laughs> you know, I would want to say, I would want to encourage people to think of this as a place that can thrive, can be, you know, both integrated, but, but you know, thriving and, and prosperous as a neighborhood and, and you know, that is welcomes growth. Um, I, I think that I think that probably, you know, Detroit is in some ways, this is the worst in Detroit because Detroit has the worst concentration and the worst uh, of abandonment of anywhere in the country. But but I've seen similar concerns, I guess, in, in for instance, here in Minneapolis in our sort of lower income neighborhoods. Well, William Stansel, I mean, it's a it's a really remarkable piece of work. I'm uh, putting a link to it on my page today for people to check it out. Uh, it really is incredibly thorough, and you can get a sense of what's happening, not just here, but uh, in 50 of the largest metropolitan areas in the nation. Uh, William Stansel, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. Again, William Stansel is a research fellow at the Institute on Metropolitan Opportunity at the University of Minnesota. His study, which has just been released, of course, taking a look at neighborhood change in the 50 largest metros in the United States. We appreciate him being with us for this lengthy discussion today. If you want to give me some feedback, let me know what you're experiencing in your neighborhood. Please do send me an email, thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com or leave a comment on the thread on social media on Facebook where I'm going to post this interview a little bit later on. Uh, So don't worry, you can always find those threads there. I'd love to keep the conversation going. Thanks for checking it out. I do appreciate it. And again, your feedback is welcome. We'll be back tomorrow. Lots more to discuss. Have a great Tuesday evening, everybody, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news.